Welcome back to the Flick Lab. As the film also has this particular word, it's kind of fitting for our episode's mood as well, I believe. Today, nightmare. I'm Karri. My co-host is Henrik. <laughs> and this is Karri's prime time. Bitch. Yeah, so we have already covered Nightmare on Elm Street. The first one uh, quite early on in this podcast, episode 20-something. Go check that out if you haven't. And then you can listen to the Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge episode. Uh, which I also considered uh, quite of a great movie. And now we're, <laughs> we're in the third part and Henrik is a super fan of it. I'm not so much. So we're going to clash again, as in the previous episodes, pretty much. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And do remember, everybody, that my opponent today is a man who considers Freddy's Revenge to be a great movie. Yep. <laughs> well, great is kind of too much, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Today's film, Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors. This is kind of a infamous film. Quite divisive. There, with, with Nightmare Community, there, it's almost like we have two camps. There is a camp where I belong to, who consider that this is rather a good film. I go as far as say, to say that this is one of the franchise highlights. And then there is the other side, which is much more Curry's territory, who consider that this is a complete abomin abomination. And this would be kind of the film that is at fault for ruining the franchise and making it shit. All in all, I think it's just a film that doesn't speak to me as much as the previous entries. After this one, of course, the, the film series just ceases to exist for me uh, as far as innovations go or as far as ideas go and the general film quality is going to drop immensely after the third one. Yeah, I, on the other hand, I I see that this is kind of the, the moment where the franchise kind of peaks. And following this point onwards, the franchise continues as being more imaginative. Well, if you con consider those, those sudden scenes where something happens in the bathroom, which quite doesn't make any sense, imaginative, it's just there for most of the time, especially I would say in the parts of four or five, it, it's, just, it's just there to be kind of cool props. And I'm, I'm, I on my end, I am completely fine with that. In, in fact, cool props and, and exciting shit happening is kind of what I have been ex waiting for the franchise to do for these past two movies. So you're kind of the person who likes the Q branch here. Whereas, once again, I am not a big fan of it. I do think that, well, see, seeing how the, how the franchise's big gimmick is supposed to be 
that they date that the horror takes place within people's dreams. Freddy is supposed to be a ghost dream killer. The the god of a lord of dreams, this almost omnipotent god-like entity within the dream world. Uh, I kind of feel that the past two entries in the franchise have kind of been, you know, lacking in in the whole dream aspect. I'm not saying that the films necessarily succeed as as horror movies all the time. It, and and the further kind of the franchise it's, it it goes, the kind of a lesson the horror will be to a point where, well, part six is is I, I would say it's it's almost downright comedy with only a few kind of a weird, terrifying themes or aspects dropped here and there around the movie, but. I, I still do feel that when it comes to the, the whole Dream Master aspect, once from, from Dream Warriors onwards, the franchise gets more playful with the dreams. Mm -hmm. And it starts to get more and more inventive in the ways how, well, essentially how, the, how Freddy kills people. In, in the first two films, it's, it's mostly knife kills, uh, which are then, you know, which come accompanied by a couple of one-shot murders here and there, like, for example, the whole Johnny Depp, Depp uh, blood fountain thing that happens in, in the first one. Really great moment, but that's, that's kind of a one aspect where Freddy really does something, like, truly out of this world. And... Outside of those those few kills, it mostly is dude just knifing someone to death. Yeah, I I felt that what made what made the first one and the second one work for me really well were that there were still some kind of groundedness about those dreams, and dreams can be grounded, whereas the part three kind of goes the whole nine yards and wants to make it into this fantastical almost kind of a action adventure fantasy it's not even depicted as horror in all of the kind of articles that i went through it's more about some kind of a slasher fantasy slasher was what they called it well yeah slasher is horror in a sense but what made the first and second one work for me i think it was that it was relatively grounded and there was still some kind of a playbook there and even if you are trying to challenge me on the second part where freddy is rising from the next to the pool jumps in and starts to slaughter the people in real life well this is exactly what happened also in the first one where nancy pulled the guy out of her dream to the real world and something like this, this this kind of a transition is happening here where Freddy is kind of one leg at least in the real world. And that's how he is able to do that. So for some reason, Wes Craven has a really hard time accepting that. Then he goes on to write with three other guys this third part and the, the rules are off the table. Yeah, um, a number of notions we with with considering everything that you said i 
first of all, I fully do understand where you're coming from, and I'm not really trying to disagree with you here. It it comes essentially it comes down to matter of taste. Mm-hmm. You like the more grounded stuff, and while I I do admit that it is perhaps it can sell the the building of tension better at times because there's there's a lot of things that go go uh, around even in the first film but i can i can get it that you appreciate the 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 more grounded dreams of the first two films and i do actually agree with the sentiment that these that part three onwards nightmare films are kind of a fantasy slashers that's actually pretty accurate depiction of what these films become but for me, I I always was more interested about the fantasy slashers, and that's gonna what I always expected to find from from nightmare films. It perhaps helps that my first film I ever saw was Freddy's Revenge, and I never really liked that movie so much. And then mm-hmm. I came to Dream Warriors, and I I kind of got this experience that Dream Warriors was fixing a lot of things for me that I felt. Freddy's Revenge was failed to do, but I've always kind of sympathized more with fantasy slasher elements of of the franchise over the more grounded ones. Yeah, for me, there is something about this more one-on-one situation where you have Nancy against uh, Freddy, uh, whereas in the part three, you have this whole group fighting Freddy and that in itself is already starting to make the film more not so much of a a horror movie something a little bit more fantastical frankly and uh, then there are these group dream problems I'm not really a big fan of the idea that we have shared dreams because all the time when you're watching this you have this feeling like really really do you want to go down this rabbit hole and all the possible problems that it might introduce in the mind of the viewer. For example, using this group hypnosis and going into dream, magically they are all together in this one dream and able to teleport into one of these isolation rooms. Yes, it's... Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. It, it, is, it, is, it is a bit problematic, especially if you try to kind of find any kind of a sense and a logic like truly proper, properly, ra- rationally understand how exactly is this going to work? Because, like you mentioned, yes, once once the group dream thing gets introduced, so so Kirsten can essentially she can pull anyone into her dreams whenever the plot tells her to, and like you mentioned, they can teleport into one location like the quiet room where Kirsten is being held, even though she's not pulling them in the dream and she does not know that the other others of the group are currently dreaming. They can just do that. And then there is a the whole whole thing when they, they are in the group dream. They are within, they are inside the, the quiet room and Freddy starts to slash the walls and, and Nancy yells, yells to the group that don't get separated. And, the, and some feathers fly around, and they are immediately separated all of them. So yes, it's 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 kind of 
it, it's kind of hit and miss. It's it's kind of hit and miss. It, it's it it works for me in in that in in that fantasy way. And but at the same time, I I do admit that it opens up a whole can of worms. And naturally, a can of worms has been opened several times in parts one and two already especially when you're just dealing with some kind of a concept like a dream and your characters interacting in that in some kind of a real world sense and pulling people and objects out of it insofar as freddy krueger is a person but um then we get to part three where we have magical doors somehow appearing to them that will take them to the boiler room we have freddy who appears in several kinds of forms for example the so-called penis worm doing the kind of a mm -hmm. vaginal area eating as seen in the uh, kind of a illustrations or s small size replicas before shooting the actual scene as being kind of part of the idea obviously but um this and the fact that the Freddy can appear so randomly anywhere, like you said about the slashing of this room's walls all of a sudden. Basically, he's doing so much, so many random things throughout these films, especially part three, that, well, there are no rules. You could just start the this movie with the first scene and Fred would just slash the shit out of all the characters and uh, just roll the credits, you know, same logic. You could, you could. That that's one thing that's always been with Freddy Krueger ever ever since the first film, is that the franchise wants to portray Krueger as someone who is who is really over empowering within the dream rooms. Like when when you fall asleep, you are almost completely in Krueger's mercy. And I get why why that is being done. It, it makes the, the survivor characters to be more on the loose end, edge and on, on a thin ice, meaning that they have to fight harder in order to survive the film. So naturally that builds tension. However, the downside of that has always been the fact that Kruger always just kind of fails to ki kill the brats. Like, like you, you have the guy, you have the guy who can one shot kill a character. And does that repeatedly in every installment of the franchise. And then there are just those, those few guys who Freddy always completely fails to maim to death somehow. Yeah. Something that also is, is kind of a running theme uh, with, with the films is, is the near misses that Kruger has when it comes to knifing someone. Yeah, in his own playing field, in the dreams where things should be more possible for him. Yup. And and it, it even happens when the dreams trap the other characters. Like you, you like you see in in Dream Warriors, like you've seen in the previous installments, where the, the floor kind of changes and it, it becomes this star and the, and it traps the, the dreamer. She's try, trying to run away but the floor is is tar, so she can't move, and the Kruger is approaching, and it's in the final moment. She somehow gets her, is, is able to run again, and Kruger near misses her, his target. 
we have kind of talked about it already, but what do you think about the overall tonal shift here? Because it, I, I think it's something that we should uh, concentrate on as well. Freddy shifting from a, what I would call a dream monster into a dream jester more in this in this film. So it's not so scary. It's mm -hmm. more funny, isn't it? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, there, there are a couple of things when it comes to the tonal shift, which most definitely does happen in part three. And this is the one where Freddy starts to utilize one-liners, and he he like already mentioned, he starts to to be more playful in the dreams. He starts to more mimic objects and use object objects within the dreams, like. In, in in part three, he, he turns into a television, which turns into television Freddy, which kills a person. That type of stuff starts to happen from three onwards. And it, it is it is a tonal shift, and it doesn't does not necessarily work for everyone. I kind of feel that that tonal shift is is what eventually kept the franchise alive. Because I kind of believe that Freddy Krueger, the person he was be he was being in the first two films, kind of reached the end of his road in those two films, and you somehow mm -hmm. had to reinvent Krueger in order to you know cash out what four or five more sequels. Yeah, no doubt you had already done what you had done in part one and two, and established the character how the character more or less works so it was time to introduce some some new frontiers of the character with uh and everything was obviously very consciously done that this time it's not gonna be only one character against freddy it's gonna be a group and it's gonna take a more yeah. fantastical direction yeah and another thing with with freddy krueger is that uh, when it comes to the list of horror villains when we talk about our Beanheads and Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees and stuff like that, that Kruger has always been very inconsistent horror film villain. Yeah. Even even in the the previous two films, you you had this this kind of a conflict between how Freddy was being portrayed in the in within a singular movie, like. Even in the even in the first one, which everybody seems to agree is some kind of a horror masterpiece that does everything right and is nothing more than band-shitting terror through and throughout, you have Freddy Krueger, the extremely intimidating dream killer, who is a pure who is pure nightmare fuel. And then you have Freddy Krueger, the dude who just kind of a, has really long arms in, in one scene. And then you have Freddy Krueger who chops off his own goddamn fingers for some reason. Because and then then you have Freddy Krueger, that the goofy dumbass who goes to walks straight into every single home alone trap that just happens, and eventually is beaten by because Nancy turns her back to him, and that outdoes Freddy. Yeah, because it's connected uh, to what uh, you got at the bridge with Johnny Depp's, Depp's character. You know, he, 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 Johnny Depp's character 
Uh, I'm already forgetting his name. John? No. I, I, I can never remember Johnny Depp's character either. It's just Johnny Depp. Yeah, Johnny Depp is giving the advice to Nancy's character, Nancy, that um, there is this whatever ancient belief that if you turn your back to the monster, then it will disappear because you will... Because if you do that and you do not fear this antagonist in your dreams, then the monster will disappear and you will... This energy that you have given for this monster will disappear. And that's kind of the story arc. Yeah, it is It is the story arc. Just one thing with that story arc. At that point, the film has made a huge song and dance number about how Freddy becomes, re- becomes real and physical after Nancy pulls something out of the dream world. That, that's around the, the whole concept around which the whole home alone traps are built upon. That Freddy becomes real and physical because Nancy pulls him out. So mm-hmm. now we have a, a burnt victim, real and physical burnt victim, who has real and physical knives in his hands. Yeah. And he still gets defeated because Nancy turns her back. Like I, I don't I haven't heard any mugging happening in happening in real life where dude beats the mugger by turning him turning his back to the mugger and walking away it's you just get mugged that that's what happens yeah it's clear that it's not entirely consistent but when it comes to these chopped off fingers uh, in these moments freddy is still very scary even though he's doing all these goofy things for me i never saw the problem with the huge hands at the alley i thought that just 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 works for me but then there are these character inconsistencies or the way that the character gets changed throughout the first film if you're not talking about about the first film then and when he's pulled out of the dream world yeah he becomes physical and that's why the home alone stuff is working so well on freddy that's my theory and of course yeah (laughs) then by the end He's being destroyed by this I turn my back on you thing. Well, I guess he's still the <laughs> dream monster. Something like that. So, something like that. It, it's a noble idea. Like that. That's what I always maintain with, with the first Nightmare. It, it has some really good ideas. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, the main concept of Freddy is, is absolutely terrifying. And e- even the concept of you essentially beating the monster by taking back your fear. Yep. That that's also I I do honestly feel that that's a good concept. But Henrik, do you remember the the photography in this film? How it's shot? There there are those moments where the film is still building up, where it's pretty spooky, scary to be to be frank. My favorite moments must be when the first kind of proper dream starts and. Uh, and uh, the girlfriend character is on the alley and the way that it's built and then the trash can top is rolling on the street and you see the shadow of the hat all that is beautiful beautiful stuff another place where this works so well is when nancy is at the school and goes to the sellers and asks who are you and then he steps onto the frame doesn't answer the goddamn question which is what you're supposed to do and not what happens in part three, where 
we have the nun basically explaining all about Freddy. But once again, I understand the flip side of it. It's the part three. You need to do something else with the character. Frankly, this is what they decided to do. Yeah, yeah, and, and in part three, everybody already knows. Like you, you also also have to remember the the kind of a franchise perspective and, and the ticket sale perspective, the producer perspective in into these things. Uh, at this point, a nightmare was already a major franchise. So when it came to Freddy Krueger, when it came to Krueger's identity, when it came to what Krueger was. Basically, every mystery that was there in the first film that came as a surprise to audiences. At this point in time, in real world, everybody was already in on who Kruger was. Yeah, He was talked to the death to a point where basically there was no longer a point asking from Freddy who he is or even trying to explain what the fuck Kruger does. Because everyone in the audience already knows it. In the documentaries, Heather Langenkamp playing Nancy uh, explains how there were some trick-or-treaters coming to his door, her door, and there would be some kid who had been dressed up as Fred Krueger. And that kind of started to ring her bells that, yeah, nobody's dressing up as Nancy, but somebody's dressing up as Fred Krueger. This is at the point where she was kind of apparently happy to just get over and done with with the first one and didn't or didn't really have any aspirations to return for a second one probably the big reason being that Wes Craven was not involved by his own volition but yeah he started to realize that this is now kind of a big icon that people connect with hugely and then Wes Craven was offered the, the this work to co-write or write with other people this part three and that's how heather langenkamp got involved i'm not sure where i was going with this but this is what happened yeah uh even though as far as i've understood uh Graves original script really got done dirty by by the producers who felt that Graves script was way too dark so essentially as far as i've understood that the whole shit was pretty much rewritten to make it more more softer. Well, there's so many versions and treatments. It seems that there was uh, the first concept where the kids would be moving to the same city to commit suicide, but this was deemed as too controversial, so they didn't go with that. And uh, I'm not sure if it was part of the same concept, but there was an idea that Freddy was going to invade the real world and hunting the actors filming the Nightmare on Elm Street actors filming the Nightmare on Elm Street sequel, which, of course, Wes Craven was later able to do on the so-called Part 7, the the uh, new Nightmare. Yeah. But then there was also John Saxon's treatment, <laughs> uh, where the uh, overarching idea was that Fred Krueger was never guilty of child molestation or child murder, but rather, he was wrongly convict convicted and burned alive, even though the real killings were done by Charles Manson's gang. Sounds really stupid, to be frank. Uh, then there was England's treatment, where Tina Gray's older sister returns to Springwood to, to investigate her sister's untimely death. And some parts of the, that treatment were used in 
Freddy's Nightmares, the TV series. Yeah, it, it kind of gets, gets messy trying to figure out exactly what was shot in any given time within the franchise. Like what, what script are we once again following and what scripts get, got left behind? And in the final product, what is being imported in any given, given script version? But uh, another big point that we should discuss is the character decisions of the film. So some of them are really nonsensical and that rather bothered me. The biggest is when Kincaid doesn't wake up Philip, just says, have a nice troll, asshole, when he's sleepwalking. And then when the guy is actually dead, he's in the group chat and he just goes, oh, well, he wasn't strong enough, so he got wasted, that's all. Nice guy! Uh, yeah, yeah, once again, I, I do have to admit, this is something that doesn't make perfect sense. That the film, of course, it, it tries to elude and elude to this uh, earlier when it makes the knowing point that Philip has a habit of of sleepwalking. That is true. That that's yeah. That that's what's supposed to go with go on with Kincaid dur during that night. Of course, it doesn't make real sense seeing how Kincaid is one of the Elm Street kids. So he is glued on the situation. And even though, even if Philip should, uh, Philip would have the habit of sleepwalking, Kincaid should realize just to, you know, play, play it safe and wake him up, seeing, seeing how they all know how dangerous dreaming can be. And when it comes to the dismissiveness that Kincaid showcases, about uh, con concerning Philip's death, uh, it it kind of ties in at, at least for me. E even though even though it is once again it's a bit nonsensical coming precisely from an Elm Street kid, right? Who I I I repeat is in the know of what is happening really within the institution, but it for me it it, it is kind of trying to tie into the, the larger concept that the film has, which is the whole whole suicide plotline that the movie is going on. Essentially, in, in part three, those who haven't watched the film yet, the big thing is that Freddy is, is masquerading his, his murders as suicides. He, he kind of commits them, them in the way that to the outside world, it, it looks like what really are murders would be suicides or freak accidents or just kids harming themselves. And this is, and, and the outside world really buys into this concept. They, they really thought that, think that the kids are just being, being you know, self-harming. Yeah, but this is something that and happens in the first and second one. This kid who is in the cell and he apparently hangs himself. Everybody is okay with that information. He was he hanged himself and there was no dream monster involved, clearly. And in the second part, you have the the body takeover, where once again Freddy is kind of setting up his 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 body there to that that he would have committed these acts. 
Yeah, that is. But even though I do feel that that for a Dream Warriors kind of does more with the idea. It does in 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 parts one and two. It's essentially one character and Freddy Freddy masquerades like one kill out of all of them as a as a suicide or or something that someone else has done. I, I don't know for some reason really because then he he goes full one shot killing everybody but in 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 dream warriors that that whole suicide attempt it, or, or that whole suicide angle is like one of the main plot lines that the film follows and it it does kind of tie into into what i think is is one of the one of the bigger strengths of of Elm Street 3 that it it kind of emphasizes Freddy's child molesting nature and behavior. You know, it's funny when you talk about it, sorry to interrupt, but indeed in the first part and in the second part, the molestation part of the kids is never mentioned, but somehow it is that obvious for the viewer that there must be some molestations involved like who goes and collects kids and just burns them well at least in the third part where where you have this kids with this uh with this uh, bike and everything you you just get the molestation vibe from somewhere there you do you do and of course it it's something worth to note that in in the original run of, of elm street films Freddy never was outed as child molester. He 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 was always talked about as a child killer. The child molester thing was something that was confirmed in the remake eventually. But Wes Craven, when he wrote the first one, he did write Freddy as a child molester. Yeah. And it was the producers who felt that that's too dark and demanded that Wes Craven takes the molestation out and turns Freddy simply a child killer. That's pretty dark too. That that's pretty pretty dark too. But somehow it was it was easier for New Line to sell as as long as you know touching Jennies and penises, but not involved. Exactly, the American morals. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay to ki- kill the kid, but but just just you know no penises, please. Yeah. But with that. The, the molestation angle was always hidden underneath the Kruger character, even though the films were too cowardly to say it out loud. The Kruger always carried the molestation aspect with him through, through, through and throughout the films, even, even though the official theory always was, yeah, he was just a child killer. And with, the, with the, all, that, all that molestation and sexual assault, I, I kind of do find an added angle into into Freddy masquerading the, his kills as as suicides, because the, the effect that Freddy this way has is that he manages to turn the blame for the deaths upon the upon the kids, EA the victims. The the victims now gets seen as as weak as quitters as some someone's uh, as someone who faces a hard time and 
can't handle it. They, they are downright ridiculed. Like Kirsten's mother makes the remark that he, she became more suicidal after her credit card to, to got taken away. And that's, that's right. That's really serious. Like horrible things. Kirsten is, is fighting Kruger and Kruger has made it appear to be in, in that light that even her own mother is kind of just making a joke out of it, really. And all of that, you know, the victim blaming, the, the gaslighting, turning your, your loved ones against you, all of that is, is actually pretty much in, in sexual predator molestator modus operandi. So on, on that level, I, I do think that there actually is quite a lot going on in Dream Warriors with the whole suicide plotline. Mm, something that you have discussed before is that even though you could see these sort of char characters inside the hospital, for example, this uh, el uh, elder lady nurse who whatever was her title seems if i seems, remember correctly yeah the doctor seems she's of course just doing her job to the best of her understanding and tries to protect the kids from her her perspective i remembered her, her as being this very malevolent uh, <laughs> evil character who really doesn't care about the kids but that is not so evident on the screen actually um, if she's, it's just a, it's just a bunch of different perspectives that you have this Nancy who already has gone through the entire ordeal, even though she doesn't tell anything about anything for the first half of the film and just lets a couple of kids die without saying anything, perhaps waiting for the perfect moment then <laughs> a little bit too long, whichever the case. There's this character, and then there is this character who is kind of on the verge, like, yeah, yeah, is Nancy taking a little bit too much hypnosil, or is there something to it? And then there is this traditional Dr. Sims. And then there is the whole, you know, we can also jump on to this whole science ver versus religion that they so like to put into the, the, the film. And oftentimes, yeah, it can work, and sometimes it's just like, put in there and making it, I guess, kind of a quasi-intellectual or deeper than you would see on the surface type of thing. I don't know if it's really pushed enough here. I think that it is pushed pretty heavily. Um, well, when it comes to the science versus religion, this is something that, that horror movies kind of are condemned to do. Especially these days when supernatural horror has become more popular. There, there is kind of a... Like, if, if you follow horror films to their silent film roots, to the black and white era, you, you can kind of see this shift in, in horror movies. In, during, the, during the silent time, uh, horror films where often of the movies where there was something weird going on there was some kind of a monster or something people disappeared and appeared in weird places it looked like it was a haunting but at the end of the film it it gets 
uh, it, it gets revealed that nothing supernatural is going on. It's just some kind of a sadistic mean bastard doing all of this. The monster is is either deformed or under heavy layers of makeup. And all the weird appearing and disappearing, well, it's just secret passages, really. And during this time period, horror films were very much science-oriented. Like, there was the, the, the conclusion was reached through a rational, often man, character who is the one who finds the hidden doors and eventually solves the case, so to say. But once films or horror started to reach color, they they started to become more and more supernatural. This already happened in black and white era, certainly. Even even in some silent films, there were there were supernatural creatures, like for example, Mornos Nosferatu. Hmm. But the the kind of a more modern horror films become. The more and more they start, started to lose this aspect of, well, there's a rational explanation behind everything, and it became more and more supernatural. And the problem with this, or quote-unquote problem, depending on how you feel about it, is that after supernatural is introduced into a horror film, it automatically means that the religious side wins over the story. Yeah. You, you can't really have vampires, ghosts, and ghouls, and then be like, well, there is no supernatural, it's all scientific. That that just goes out of the window. You can't scientifically explain Freddy Krueger. So, supernatural and religious side automatically, in horror movies, proves that the scientific take is at wrong. The shrinks at the, uh, at the institution who try to logically solve the Kruger problem, they are wrong because Kruger is supernatural hinge religious threat. And the only way to fight against Kruger is to go with supernatural and religious uh, counterpunches. Yeah, and uh, essentially religion wins at the end as the prevailing argument. Yeah, uh, pretty much in... Yeah, pretty much in... in every horror film these days, thanks to the whole supernatural thing. Yeah. In Dream Warriors, religion also wins the, the actual argument going on in the film. The, the non-character that gets introduced in, in Dream Warriors has a really small but still prominent debate with the main male character, the, the psychiatrist from the institution about how he should tackle the situation. Yeah. All, all those notions about how, how science appears to be very lonely and sad religion and some such. And, you know, with, with, with Kruger, everything the nun says gets proven out to be true. And science is sad and, and lonely religion and... You should really put your faith in the cross, man. Yeah, this is kind of weird coming from... Well, it's not only written by Wes, Wes Craven, but you think that he had something to do with this. And uh, this Wes Craven, uh, I don't think he is particularly religious, but what happens here is legitimizing uh, the faith of Christianity, just like that. 
connecting it directly with Kruger and how to beat Kruger. Not particularly a fan of this approach and not also a fan of films that have this, well, as I put it, magical nun, but obviously a ghost nun, but magical in nature nun who just does these appearances, essentially a ghost. And we have seen this so many times, at least in the 2K onwards. Not sure how prominent this was as a theme in the movies of those times, but goddamn am I tired of this this theme. As the nun being uh, some you kind, mean... as as the nun character being some kind of a orator of morality and what you should do and where you should go and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's most definitely it's not the film's strongest suit. Yeah. Like as you mentioned, Christianity in the end it very prominently prevails over everything else in this film. The when it comes to understanding Freddy, basically the added backstory that you get to the character, that comes from the nun. The, the main idea, or even, even for fuck's sake, the direct answer how to win Freddy, bury him in the hallowed ground, that comes from the nun. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Freddy doesn't even get beaten in the dream world by the so-called dream warriors. He gets beaten with holy water and cross. So yeah. eventually, yeah, in, in Dream Warriors, it is Christianity above everything else. And the problem is that it, it seems like a cheap solution. Like, we cannot really get all of this backstory out of Fred Krueger. So we have to introduce another character to do the job, essentially just giving that backstory, essentially being the catapult for solving the entire film. And there is no backstory really to this character. We get to find out it in the end, what this character is all about. But that, it's just kind of convenient. Here I pop up and here's what you need to do. It, it is, it is. And it also, to me, kind of shows that, showcases that the script writers create themselves into the corner. Uh-huh. Where they really, like, in, in Dream Warriors, it's supposed to be so that Kruger now is, is more powerful than ever before. For some reason. And he can do more stuff yeah. than, than ever before. For, for some reason, which doesn't really make any sense from a guy who has already gotten his ass kicked twice. Because apparently he has so much power from the previous kids that now he's too powerful and a group is needed. Yeah, yeah, and all all this this nonsense seems to lead, at least for me, it seems to lead into a situation where the scriptwriters no longer really knew how how to finish off Kruger because he has to die at the end of the film. Yeah, the so they then reach to perhaps one of the more more easier perhaps even easiest solutions that you can have into the Kruger problem, which is that, you know, you just douse him in holy water and throw a cross at him. And, you know, remember to bury the, bury the bones. Problem solved. Yeah, it was and that... Wes Craven's... It was Wes Craven's kind of a wish that this would be it, where we have taken the film serious, I suppose in as many directions as is 
needed and that and he didn't want any sequels to begin with for Nightmare on Elm Street and he wanted to end it right here but oh boy this made some money and uh, indeed Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was the one that as kind of stated served as the kind of kind of the instruction manual on how to do Elm Street from now on for better and for the worst yeah yeah it did but regarding it did what about the pacing henrik because i think the film is not particularly well paced at least when it comes to if you're trying to be horror here it's just not really working out there's no build up freddy appears in places often very close too close for comfort instead of what happens perhaps in the first two parts where he gradually gets nastier and closer and more violent but um, people here die but it's like very separate scenes where this happens there's one particular scene given for one character to die and from the beginning it's kind of obvious okay this guy's gotta go now but what is the the actual plot-wise consequences of that death i don't think it's as strong as it was for example in the first one it it kind of depends on what death you are looking at um first of all i i do agree with you on, on the fact that in in dream warriors pretty more or less just appears he is no longer any kind of a as you put it looming that that gets larger and larger larger and closer and closer as the film progresses in in here he is in the forefront immediately and no, no nobody really is anymore shadowed by freddy kind of when the film starts we are already in the midway point of the first film like kirsten starts at the exact same point where nancy took something like 20 or 30 minutes to reach he she is already eating raw coffee and doing everything to stay awake and uh, freddy already has kind of a left or most of that taunting stuff behind him and at this point is is almost 100 percent now ready to kill 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 his targets and while yeah that that takes the build up out, out of out of kruger's presence to me didn't really it didn't bother me that much because as mentioned this is the third film in the franchise so kruger has been built up at this point kruger is mostly there there to serve the decor hungry audiences at this during dream warriors you're mostly just tuning in to, to see what freddy does this time who gets killed and how freddy is finished off the mystery around Kruger really got solved in the first one yeah i will give it to the film that it starts really quickly frankly i never quite understood why they needed to use the nancy house the elm street house as kind of the location where most of the dreams are centered on in the original scripts it was supposed to be the home of fred Krueger. obviously the crowd is not gonna quite understand that unless you give a lot of visual clues and you spend time on that because we haven't seen the home of fred Krueger so far but then also using nancy's home it's it's kind of weird 
but it apparently does and obviously does serve as kind of a the center of his dreamscape and there it kind of seems like there are some sets inside this house and from which people fall out of literally at least in one scene which is kind of nice yeah it, it, it has it has it's it's a the, the house is more of a amusement park yeah at this point than any kind of a home yeah and when you look at the house, if you don't know that it's it's supposed to be Nancy's ho- previous home or past home, you actually get the idea that it's it's Freddy's apartment, really, because e- everything looks like shit, and there's rotting pigs on the table, and and the weird ghost kids are like, well, this is the basement where he brings us. Yeah. <laughs> Freddy's home. So it's it's only it's 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 only the midpoint of of Dream Warriors when Nancy makes the tri- <laughs> remark that I used to live in that house, and I'm always like, what the fuck? Right. Was it wasn't that Freddy's home? Right. Hmm. I found some kind of hurtful myth upkeeping in the film. For example, even though the film's kind of one big subplot if you will is the suicide there are some rather politically incorrect quotes like suicide it's a cowardly thing something like that that the the male duck is spewing out of his mouth which is not entirely fair then there is another moment about the out of wedlock birth which apparently makes for a child murderer and rapist yeah, yeah, those two things. Uh, well, the take a look at both here in in episode. Uh, with the first one, this being the suicide is a cowardly thing. I don't have a problem within this one movie within Dream Warriors. O- obviously, I disagree with the notion very heavily. I. I am not one of those people who who condemned suicide. And with that out of the way, I I can see that the characters of the film are condemning of suicide. To me, it it kind of ties down into the the whole grander theme of victim blaming. And Freddy making the other characters to make the argument that this is your own goddamn fault. And because yeah. of that, I'm I'm kind of a forgiving the the suicide attempt. Uh, the suicide is a cowardly thing argument in Dream Warriors, not necessarily outside of it, but in Dream Warriors. When it comes to the, your second point, the second harmful harmful myth that that out of wedlock or comes child murderers and rapists, or even to be more specific, not only out of wedlock but being well, r- being raped and then giving birth to this this child. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is actually much more complicated and way more harder. Uh, that that's one of the things where where the film fucks it up. Uh, in fact, this is my my main problem with the non-character and and the whole added backstory to Fred Krueger. What is it, the bastard child of the 100 maniacs? 
that's pretty bad as well in this game. Yeah, precisely that, which is absolute horseshit. Like, <sighs> let, let's let's tackle, tackle, let's tackle the whole bunch of things here. First of all, Fred Krueger's added, added backstory is unneeded, unnecessary, and Thank frankly, you. in fact, quite damn stupid. I, I understand why they did it. It's once again to, to build more brand recognition, to give Fred Krueger ominous bad guy nickname from, from Dream Warriors onwards. Krueger fans have repeatedly referenced Krueger as the bastard son of yeah, Maniacs. Yeah, it repeats in 4, 5 and I don't know, 6. Goes on and on. It, it does. And, uh, it, it does. And I get... It, it's just this the problem of sequels in in general as we've seen a hundred times in when taking an extremely ridiculously close loop on the halloween franchise there is this kind of kind of a natural need to give more backstory as you go on and on and on and it's kind of the the, the curse if you're gonna do a sequel yeah that's that's kind of what you end up with yeah and from producer point I I do agree. Uh, I do understand why you wanna do it, but it it really was unnecessary. Hmm. It it wasn't needed in in this case, and it leads into a couple of pretty damn big problems when it comes to when it comes to the film and when it comes to kind of the overarching theme of of nightmare films. Uh, the first problem, a really major one, is that the film ends up doing eugenics. It ends up arguing that evil and being a bad person is a genetical trait. Yeah. 100 bad person rape yeah. a perfectly good and innocent woman. So all that bad sperm now is forever contaminated Kruger in a way that well, Kruger hasn't doesn't really have a choice. He he can't choose to be bad. Being evil is is not something that he finds himself. He's already condemned because you know personal traits and and exactly how sadistic asshole you are. It it doesn't stem from your surroundings. It it doesn't stem from bad parents. It doesn't stem from mental illness. No, no, it's it's genes. You you just had the rapist gene in you. Yeah. Na- Jesus fucking Christ. Nature nurture. Nothing to do with it. And by the way, this whole talk in the film with the nun, bastard child of hundred maniacs, it all ties down very heavily to to different ideologies of, of the church. It, it it does. It, it it ties down in the, for example, the notion of of the original sin, the primordial sin. There you go. Eve and Adam falling out of heaven, uh, out of paradise, and because of that, all of humanity is automatically contaminated. It it's not a direct parallel, but that's also kind of what happens in here. The nun falls from paradise from her convent. And with that, when when she gets locked up with the with the maniacs, and from that fall, 
she is now tainted and basically everything that spawns from her is automatically tainted. So I I do see a bit uh, kind of a strong parallels to to you know the, the basic concept of the original scene and and kind of the the roots of of Christian faith, the roots of Catholicism in in that whole goddamn backstory. And the the second prom- problem that that emerges from from the the whole evil is is genetical thing is that it primes Freddy to be kind of a automatically unforgivably evil. Uh, the running theme behind behind the Elm Street films has been the point that. Uh, the parents of the Elm Street children were kind of at wrong when they murdered Freddy. Like, obviously, I'm not making justifications for Cooper. He was child molester and child killer. None of that is is redeemable or defendable. But still, in in our everyday society, we are supposed to follow follow laws and rules. That the whole idea behind Cooper is that. That laws were seem unfit when Kruger was alive, so the parents retort back into vigilante justice and they take the law onto their own hands. And even though you can understand why the parents did this, it still is a wrong thing to do in a modern society. We are not supposed to embrace vigilantism and and the lynch mob justice which is what the parents embarked. And on that aspect, on aspect of being lynched, Kruger is still kind of victim. That, that's one of the reasons exactly why you are supposed to follow law, mm. why, why you are supposed to stick with the rules. Because if you break the rules, the, the child, fucking child molester can make the case that well, I was also being victimized when I was burned alive. Because that's not how society is supposed to work. And on that one individual aspect of being lynched, Kruger kind of has a point in being angry at, at the parents. Once again, it does not justify his actions. In the films, you being pissed, it does not mean that you can now, you know, in revenge, kill a bunch of kids. Obviously not. But Kruger's anger can somehow be be understood. But but if we take the reading that that evil is genetical, in that case, there really was no point ever to do anything else except you know torch up Kruger. The the rules and laws can't really be applied to him since he is genetically evil. Yeah. Since he's pure evil. It's kind of and yeah, it's kind of interesting what the film is telling about souls and tortured souls that need to remain on the earth because usually something some something evil had been uh, had been done against them so they need to remain and try to forever go on some kind of a loop to repeat some kind of a past events and they can't release their ghost because they need to resolve this incident i'm not sure where this resolving part exactly comes in kruger's part but interesting juxtaposition when we have perfectly normal and decent people who 
had some horrible happen to them in their lifetime. And Kruger and that person, they roamed the earth because of wrongdoing. Hmm. Yeah. We kind of, like humanity, or at least Western humanity, I, w- I would say this is, this is extremely global, glo- global phenomena, but we kind of really do have a hold on on the concept concept of revenge. Like we pump out revenge fiction, revenge fantasies to a point where we now have specified Reddit groups and specified online groups simply centered around the concept of revenge. Justice being served, something being avenged. And we kind of take this to, to a really nasty conclusion where we now have people who even fantasize who who now fantasize that somebody for example would try to rob them just so that they could kick that robber's head in in an act of revenge in act of street justice and vengeance and something that that kind of everybody seems to forget get with that is that if we accept revenge as a as a viable solution if we say that revenge is okay then we have to ask exactly who has the right to revenge because mm. the notion we take that is that if you are wronged if somebody somebody wrongs you you have the right to you know get revenge on that person but in doing so you also break against that person so does he now have the counter right to take revenge on you and if he does well do you still have the right to revenge you you kind of get locked into an address cycle and then you can add into this cycle the side effect basically everybody who knows you your friends and loved ones which is something that kind of goes behind the scenes even though never mentioned in in the crime revenge thriller subgenre of films like for example death wish death wish series where the whole main concept is that the main character starts to get revenge on the world and ends up killing a a hell of a lot of people so yeah and we justify that Yeah. yeah so those people have loved ones they have families they have girlfriends who now have lost a person who has been shot do those people now also have the right to revenge because how how could just one person of all of us have the right to avenge the wrongdoings done to him mm. so you you kind of like in it were hard on to to have revenge and to downright fetishize the act of of a vengeance we are kind of a condemning our entire society to you know run around circles in this this never-ending cycle of revenge where everybody is just constantly taking revenge and nothing ever gets solved because you just create more and more hurt and more and more crime with with your righteous vengeance revenge equals loop yeah and that's what happens with freddy also the parents feel that they have the right to avenge so they burn up kruger kruger now is pissed and decides to take revenge 
and you get tied down into this this whole situation where everybody is taking revenge on Cougar, Cougar is taking revenge on everybody, and essentially everybody becomes a victim. Let me have one of those point blank questions for the kids and maybe the adults as well. Henrik, do you believe in ghosts? Um. Yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, not really. No. Uh, yeah. My my take on ghosts is pretty much the same as you know my take on with God. I kind of find it extremely hard to believe in any of those things. But at the same time, I have to admit that I don't have the absolute ultimate facts. Yeah. I, I have a lot of facts. I, I have a lot of things that have been considered mystic and then have been proven to be nothing more than scientific phenomena. But when it comes to something like really grandiose, like the existence of God, ex existence of any kind of spirit plane, I don't have like that they one thesis to end them all, to prove that, no, they most definitely do not exist. So even though I don't believe in any of that, I kind of I, I kind of leave, leave the back door just a little bit open, just, just a tiny, tiny crack there, just so that, yeah. you know, if, if, if any of that ever would prove its existence to me, and I would most definitely require some god-ass heavy proof, I would be extremely long-time skeptic in that situation. But would that happen? I, I am willing to admit that, you know, that there is a, like, 0.00001% chance of that happening. But I'm willing to give that, admit that percentage being there. Yeah, it uh, definitely sounds, the whole concept of ghosts sounds something that could be too easily manufactured by the human mind and especially the religious type of mind or actually essentially just the human mind who wants to justify the existence or their existence and their friend's existence in the afterworld somewhere in some type of another form because it would be convenient and soothe them and and make them maybe more calm that there is something after this. Honestly, I don't know <laughs> why that would be necessarily a good thing. But since we can't say, since we can't see everything that exists even now, let's just leave the tiny tiny door open just a little bit. We don't know everything. Yeah, but of course it's, you do well to remember that, well, human history is right with examples of people faking ghosts and, yeah. you know, simple, simple eye chemistry, eye movement things and simple brain chemistry leading into, in, into some kind of a wake gnosis of, of haunting or something like that, which have been logically and scientifically proven to be false. Yeah, it's so disappointing, isn't it, when you're starting to read about something really exciting even some guy who apparently was photographed in the past and was claimed to be some guy who just appeared on some kind of a square which was reported in some some newspaper at the time or something and seemed to be some kind of a guy from a future but then it had been proven later that the, the story was completely 
fabricated. But um, th there are so many. Yeah, yeah. Let's just, yeah, yeah. It is. It is extremely anticlimactic. Yeah. Like you know, you know, for bad or worse, most likely I would just you know end up losing my goddamn life. Would it turn out that supernatural is real and ghosts are real? Uh, like I, I most likely wouldn't survive horror movie scenario. But by God, facing that scenario would be extremely interesting and exciting. When it comes to dreams, as we're kind of on the off-topic but somehow related train, what's your most disturbing dream, if you remember anything? Uh, my main problem is that I don't really dream that often. I, God damn, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm uh, actually, I'm, I'm on that camp who has had to take medication in order to, you know, sleep properly. Hypnosil? And of course, that's not a real drug, but yeah. I, I don't remember what was the product that I had to take. Yeah. But I, I had this moment, uh, this this long ass time period that I didn't see dreams and it did affect my my dreaming in a sense that I didn't get into get into the proper levels of dream. So I, I would sleep like eight to ten hours and just wake up tired for a hell of a long time before I, I got brain medication. And these days I I, I guess I'm now in the point where I guess I do see dreams because I, I do feel a hell of a lot better. There, there was a moment when I was, I, I just lived a long time in, the, in this hazy existence where I was so constantly tired that eventually, you know, my, my waking hours were like, I, I didn't properly taste food anymore and I, I just wasn't really connected to anything and now i'm past that like food tastes great and i feel relaxed and energized and eight hours of, of sleep does wonders to me i i still can't so i guess i i do dream now i i just can't remember any of them yeah you know henrik it's it's i've had this one experience that was just really something else and uh, then I read that actually there are countries, like I believe in the Philippines, they definitely have these beliefs in different kinds of spirits in kind of every aspect of life. But they also have these beliefs that some spirits can come into your dreams and do some pretty nasty stuff for you. And as far as I understand it, there are still some really not explained cases of of lots of people having some kind of dreams and then having some convulsions and and never waking up they actually get a heart attack or some system fails when this happens seeming like they they're having an absolutely terrifying dream and they just die their system sh shuts down and 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 this is associated with uh, the sleep paralysis phenomena and I, I can say that the, I'm pretty sure that I had this once because it, it was essentially exactly as it was described online when I started reading that I was like holy shit it's when you think you are 
already half awake some kind of a state that you think you see your room like you can see around but you can't move your body and then you start seeing some kind of a it's always some kind of a shape that starts to approach you of course the extremely creepy kind of shape and it starts to get closer and closer and uh, it starts possibly crawling on top of your body in some cases and looks absolutely disturbing you can't really make out what the fuck it is but it's approaching you and you can't move an inch and uh, uh yeah I, I i wake up i woke up with uh, like completely terrified because it was the most realistic feeling dream that i've ever had and i was really screaming when i finally fucking got out of it yeah well you wouldn't be the only one uh in 1977 there was this, this group thing that happened in united states and canada uh there were these common refugees who had immigrated to the us and canada if i remember correctly they had been living some time already in those countries and then was it like on a span of one year most of the young men of those refugees all died yeah. during their during their sleep and before they died before like that final night they they had had very similar type of type of nightmares which they talk about where they also had seen this this dark shape a figure in their room and they they had grown more and more terrified of that figure yeah yeah that is truly something else <laughs> so this was an extremely successful film it was made with a budget of about 4.5 million dollars at the time and made about 44 million so it was a huge success reviews were favoring the film unlike the previous entry albeit the previous entry was extremely profitable but uh, the studio was even even cont contemplating whether they will want to move ahead with the third installment in the franchise but they did and favorite performance henrik on my end and i i guess this really is not a surprise it's it's robert england is is this no third time that he's been my favorite performance in an elm street film well that is the easy way here yeah the kind of thing with with dream warriors is that the a lot of the performances are quite inconsistent like you you have some good ones like greg wasson or Lawrence pisburn who who do pretty good staple performances then, then you have more of your mixed bag like patricia Argett, who is you kind of either love it or hate it I don't really mind her performance, but I know a lot of I do know people who really don't care for her. And essentially everybody agrees that that Heather Langenkamp is is kind of well good and bad depending on the scene. She is pretty natural in in some scenes and then absolutely wooden in others. Yeah, that is that is absolutely true. There is one scene in the corridors where she's talking to Max and trying to coax Max to let her in. 
and that I thought was quite hideous performance right there. It is, it is, it is. Uh, yeah. And unfortunately, that is not the only time when she's off in her performance. Patricia Arquette was actually to be to be possibly replaced just a few days before principal, but the director then convinced otherwise. I don't know the reason why she was about to be possibly replaced, but I can think of reasons why. Because the acting sounds really wooden. It just sounds like she's reading from, from a paper all the time. I don't know if it's just how she is, but it doesn't sound natural to me. I'm willing to give all kinds of excuses for <laughs> this little kid performance here in the boiler room. All of this. This is where he takes Josh. Because it's this kind of a creepy kid shtick. Anyway, I'm willing to look past that. But as far as my favorite performance, I would actually go with this Zaza Gabor on the television. Because because that was natural, apparently, according to Robert England. <laughs> completely improvised. I mean... I, I don't know what the situation was exactly. Like, did she really think that she was in some kind of a talk host situation? Nevertheless, Robert England claims that she didn't know what was coming and she got genuinely terrified when Robert England finally comes out of there with those fingers and who gives a fuck what you think? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that, that's very specific performance. I must give you that much. <laughs> Favorite quote. Oh. <laughs> there's the obvious, and then there's the less obvious one. The, there is the obvious. I somebody somebody has to go with the obvious, which has been used already. The death. Yeah. So I I I I claim I claim this is your prime time pitch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just that that's obviously. That one first for me. It's, it's absolutely the funniest moment also in the film. Yeah. This is it, Jennifer. Your big break in TV. Welcome to prime time, bitch. But also that <laughs> who gives a fuck what you think is coming so <laughs> out of nowhere. Love it. It, it. it does. It does. And once again, Elm Street 3, it, it, it is actually surprisingly quotable movie. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Once, once again, we, when we are not dealing with any kind of high art, all, all of a sudden you are, you are swimming in one-liners and, and quotations. Favorite kill? <laughs> well, kills in, in Dream Warriors, they, they are really interesting because you get some really great kills and then you have some really laughably lackluster kills. But what kind of a combines all the killers is that the killers in Dream Warriors, I always felt that they... This is the moment where Freddy starts to become more sadistic in, in a sense. Not necessarily in, in violence department. There, there are some truly horrific kills here. Uh, but like mentioned, some of them are really lackluster. But what I kind of found from from Dream Warriors kills and the kills following this one is that these usually target on on the characters' fears and their inner pain. Like mentioned already, uh, in the previous films, 
what Kruger mostly does is it's knife fills, it slashes, he cuts someone open. But now that the franchise gets more fantastical, the kill starts to be more util utilizing something that you like or something that you fear and hate. If you are a, a reco recovering narcotic, then what Kruger does, he taunts you with, with drug needle fingers. If you are someone who is paralyzed, Kruger taunts you with, with a demonic wheelchair. It doesn't necessarily work, like, like I said, lackluster kills, but th there is that, that added effect of psychological torment when Kruger takes something and really rubs it in your face. And also, he does this in, in a perverse way into something that you like. Like it goes with Jennifer, who, who dreams of being a TV starlet, and whose safe space and solace is found from TV programs, and then Kruger turns into a TV and murders her. So there, there is this kind of a twisted mind game that starts to happen with the kills. That out of the way, my favorite kill of the film, this one, it, it would be Philip, who gets turned into a human marionette and perhaps is, is the most visceral of, of, of all the murders in Dream Warriors. And there is something with the whole notion of, of your tendons being pulled out and used to move you. Yeah, I suppose you could say that's creative, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, in the real world, you couldn't see the tendons being out. So in this case, the violence wasn't still like a actualized yet. Yeah, it, it's once again, it, it's a goddamn thing with the room. <laughs> but like, like Freddy, Freddy cuts you open in a dream world, but because it's a dream that the violence does not show, show outside in the real world. But then again, he can send the message by cutting the dude's stomach. Yeah, yeah, which he Somehow. which he apparently then didn't do, because I'm not so sure that it he still had those cuts later. Yeah, yeah, right. Like dream cuts. Yeah, you you can you can you can you can fucking write an essay <laughs> on trying to understand. And the, how the rules are supposed to work in, in nightmares. They never work. The rules yeah. are absolute dog piss. And because of that, I feel that it's a hollow argument to chase after, well, this didn't stick to the rules, or this is keep, keeping in with the rules. Because even Wes Craven fucked up with the rules. He did. My favorite kill is, is Jennifer and her big break in TV. That is all. <laughs> it's also really creative and the way that they prepared for this, they had five different uh, fake TVs for different shots that they were going to take. And then they were able to pull it off with fake f head of Freddy and then sometimes real Freddy or England. Great stuff. Really inventive deaths in this film, if, if nothing else. Three adjectives to describe Noah's three. Uh, creative, because of the already 500 times state reasons brutal because when the kills work they actually are pretty gnarly and also funny because i i i have this mixed reaction with, with dream warriors in in the, on the moments when 
I, I do feel the tension and I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. And then there are the moments where I'm, I'm just laughing yeah. and having, having, having a fun time with the, with the more fantastical elements and, and some of the jokes of the film. Does it necessarily work as an ultimate horror masterpiece? Because it's not necessarily, but I usually am entertained by the movie. Yeah, fa- fantastical, also funny. And I should go with uh, tertiary, because I think it's kind of fitting. <laughs> well, it's the third movie, and usually what happens around uh, in sequels, around the third part when it comes to horror, is that is that it's starting to get a little bit of this, too much of this, backstory and the troubles start to show but yeah they're tertiary would you recommend nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors i on my end i would even though at the same time it it bears to remember that this may still not be necessarily a film that you like i i do kind of make the make the maintain make the point that dream warriors most likely is more the nightmare on elm street films that you remember and you are familiar with like like the style of this when when somebody pops up or mentions nightmare on elm street i would believe that most of of the listeners would be thinking something in in style with dream warriors or the later sequels more than the more grounded for uh, two previous entries so in in that sense yeah three warriors in in my opinion it is it is it, it is the moment when the franchise makes makes the tonal shift into something that i guess most people would be familiar with or something that they would think about when they think about nightmare uh does it always work uh no no not not, not really it it doesn't always work as a horror film it doesn't always work even as a film there is stuff like the added backstory and or, or and some some such which are unnecessary and unneeded and can even be quite aggravating and at times the film really does miss the mark but i still feel that dream warriors is is one of the best entries in in nightmare franchise at least that's that is to me not necessarily to to anyone everybody but i i still i still from my point i do recommend dream warriors yeah well it's a mixed mixed bag but now looking at this film again with fresh eyes i don't have such of a well not disdain but i have softened up for the film a bit as an overall package i still would argue that there are better better examples in the franchise out there but there are some scenes that kind of elevated sadly it's kind of these certain moments here and there not the film as a whole really that i like there are nice ideas but ultimately there's this bad acting these nonsensical character decisions the added non subplot or plot and guiding the whole trajectory of the film but goddamn i do enjoy the moment with jennifer when she gets her big break in tv and all that comes with it and some of those inventive kills and the jokes that this f- 
film is really hilarious at times. And I suppose I should also mention Rodney Eastman, like my probably biggest teenage crush. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I used to just rewind this film and the, the fourth one, especially the fourth one, only because of Rodney Eastman. Just checking those scenes when he gets butchered at the, his waterbed. Great, great times, great times. And even today, dude, looks fucking fantastic. Gotta say. Where were we? Yeah, uh, recommendation because of aforementioned small, but ultimately I think this is a film that you should check out because you might just have fun, just a bit. After this, not so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, to me, I, 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 I do find some enjoyment in all, all the installations, even the part six. Uh, to to a point where I can at least partly defend the movies. To a fault. But but the the fact still remains that that from, from three onwards the the attempts at pure horror they 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 start to wane from the franchise to a point where eventually it becomes. It, well, it, it it becomes outright comedy. That's what part six is. Nobody's anymore trying to take anything seriously. But three is in in the still that water break moment where it it, it halfly tries to be a horror film and half of it is the new shit. Yeah, it's broken. But it is but it is broken. But uh I still do prefer It is mixed back. It's a mixed bag. I do prefer my one and two, but um Maybe to a surprise to my as as to myself, I still it's a recommendation also to the third part. Yeah, I kind of turned turned around uh, during these days when I was researching it, just a bit. So with that out of the way, what would what would be the next film? Well, I guess we're gonna just go back to the fatherland. It's been one year again, and it's wow, this time goes really fastly by. But it looks like we're... What, what is, 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 is the Finnish independence today creeping us once again? It's looming on the horizon once again. Well, then it just has to be Unknown Soldier once again. Or a battleship Potemkin. That, 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 that would be, that would be a mean trick to pull. Maybe some other time. You, you know, you know, well, well, the only thing that that could make that stunt even more more worse for our Finnish listeners would be if, if we would make do battleship and have that guy from Rusafar's podcast <laughs> to be a be a guest. We could have an actual Russian guest as well. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what would be interesting though would be to have a Russian guest to talk about the unknown soldier. That could also be. Yeah. It it could also lead into some pretty pretty tough fights. <laughs> well, yeah. there, there's there there's a there's versions on who did what during during the winter war. I'm just saying. Yeah, I would reckon that the latest one from twenty seventeen is still the, the fairest depiction of events out of these three movies. Oh yeah, and uh, I think we should talk about it already. That we're gonna do some changes here in the lab. So yep. yeah, yeah. We we have heard your <laughs> feedback that 
that's some 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 of you some some of you that the more heretical listeners of our podcast wish to to some changes into the formula and for once in your entire lifetimes we actually do agree with you guys so we are going to shape up the formula a bit we already have have started to do that work some of you may have noticed that that the scene by scene is kind of out of out of the window it's a ghost that that occasionally pops up like like with code finger anymore <laughs> but but we we mostly wave came to you know walking through the entire film we are not no longer doing it and the changes will get more drastic yeah they will so what you heard now is the fourth last episode in this format there's still three episodes to come as per usual but starting next year it's gonna be instead of four episodes a month it's gonna be two episodes a month but not only that it's not gonna be even necessarily the usual one movie per week it's gonna be like a theme episode every second week bi-weekly so we will delve into the worlds of directors and their careers in one episode for example we might check out I don't know, the Alfred Hitchcock's films from the 20s, and the next one would be about the 30s. <laughs> Can I market this in any better way? <laughs> <laughs> what else? It, it might be the remnants, the rests of, of a franchise we have already visited yeah. in previous episodes. It, it might be the rest of the Hellraisers in, in just condensed into one episode, trying to figure out what the fuck happened? It might be the Jurassic Park sequels, con- once again condensed in one episode, trying to look exactly what the film franchise is trying to say about genetics and life and things in general. It it might be you know Clint Eastwood films, mm. trying to look how 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 the dude has made essentially the same goddamn movie, just playing a different character for fifteen fucking times. Foot, Who knows? Footnote, I'm not going to watch all uh, Clint Eastwood films for one episode. <laughs> well, you, you don't have to. You don't have to. It, basically, you watch one. <laughs> seen them all. Yeah, we have started to see the kind of shortcomings, the problems of the format that we have been doing here for over two years now. For example, the problem of, which is quite evident, is the problem of sequels. We still want to talk, uh, talk about sequels here. But the problem arises where we don't want to make a like a singular episode of Jurassic Park two, three, four, five, six. So no. So it's better to look at it as a kind of a phenomenon for, for example, one episode. Yeah. Same also goes with nightmare sequels. And it's not only about the sequels. Indeed, we might look at the careers of directors, or, for example, the cinema of a particular country. Yeah, cinema of particular time period, perhaps. Or like, for example, American cinema following the 9-11, how that affected things. Finnish underground, schlock horror, maybe Ang Lee's Father Knows Best trilogy. There's like unlimited things that we could do here. And I'm pretty excited about that. Same here, same here. I, uh, it's that the future is still a mystery even to us. We don't know how this will eventually pan out. But 
Well, we we have done in depth look into into one film for for over two years now. Yeah. And I I guess I too I I too feel that perhaps we have ridden this horse long enough and. Yeah. Perhaps we are now ready to tackle even bigger challenges. Yeah, I think so. I think it will be more interesting to our listeners. And it will give us rejuvenized energy to continue even further. There is one horse that you can ride, then the horse dies, and then you need to pick up another horse. I think that that's just life. We're trying to keep this interesting also for ourselves. And... Given that we are now changing the format into something like this, we need to have this as a bi-weekly from next year onwards. And uh, most definitely. And also, it, it, you, it's, you don't... it's just the general workload that we have had for two years. And I'm looking at like the the friends uh, on the other side of the pond, or or for example, the the Russia Files Unite Russian film podcast from the UK done by Ali Pitts and I really like what they're doing they're really in-depth they have really great guests related to the episodes and and I, I was shocked that he's doing it only once a month we're doing this four times a month mm-hmm. and we have we are basically killing ourselves doing it so yeah we are we are like like some of us haven't seen their friends for who God knows how in in how, how long time. Because basically, as as until the break, which eventually comes during the Christmas period, once again, your entire week essentially is being used completely back searching that week's film. And I have to chill, still edit the goddamn beast on top of that. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully this change, even though even though now we tackle kind of a more more grandiose things. Now one episode can consist more movies than previously because and that that may require us that we watch more films, but hopefully that also kind of <laughs> gives us also some some free time. Yeah. And the, uh, at least yeah. at least now we can pan out the background work for a long and time period. Because now we have two weeks. I think so. And I think it will improve a lot of things. I think I can be more active on the social media without having the constant pressure of moving on constantly and not stopping and, you know, reflecting and planning out properly. And now we can also plan our weekends. We don't have to kind of, it's been like this that I can't really go anywhere. Or if I go, then it needs to be extremely thoroughly planned. If I go somewhere on Sunday, we we need to give take our all our recording gear and whatnot. So no, we need to change. Yeah, I hope you will still be listening to us after this. Yeah, here here is praying. But as stated, we'll we will still be going on on the same rails until the end of the year. So next week, tune in hopefully for Tuntematon Sotilas. Once again, this time the 1985 edition. <laughs> <laughs> this this is Finnish cinema in in a nutshell. <laughs> when it, well, it, it's just the unknown soldier and nothing else. <sighs>
knowing myself, I'm probably going to rewatch all of those three movies again and at the end be like, I want to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to try that task. I'm just going to watch, watch the 1985 version. Just focus on that. And I'm not, I'm not going to even speak towards the TV series version of 2017 Unknown Soldier. <laughs> More insanity next week. Until then. Toi peräpää ehkä vielä kestää vielä hetken, kunnes se ei kestä. Voi ainakin kokeilla, olisi vähän laadukkaampi peräpää siellä vielä. <laughs> <laughs>